Hello and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I am your host, Sarah, and I've got my co-host, Darcy, with me this evening. How are you, Darcy? I'm doing pretty good. I am getting ready to go on my big trip to Canada, and I'm really excited about that. I've never been to Canada before. What? Seriously? I know. Uh-uh. I grew up very close to the border, so yeah. I've been to Canada many, many, many times. Canada is one of my favorite places. Yeah, I'm super excited. Got a lot of Canadian family as well, so. Oh, cool. So today's episode is something that Darcy asked me as a personal favor to be able to cover as a single issue on its own because she feels a personal connection to this case. Why don't you kind of explain to the listeners why you feel so strongly about this case and why it's so important to you? So in the interest of disclosure, I've said it on here before, but I I went to Auburn. I did my bachelor's and my master's at Auburn. And the year between my bachelor's and my master's, there was a horrific, horrific murder of an Auburn student. Um, This was in 2008. And I was not in Auburn at the time, but many of my friends were. I remember every little detail about this case. It was one of the first cases that I followed as it was happening and I know all the places where different things happened and I just I I didn't ever I didn't know this this girl but I just felt a very personal connection because it did happen in Auburn and so and 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 it doesn't seem that it has been covered and I wanted to cover this and talk about Lauren a little bit tonight. So is it fair to say then this is one of the cases that truly sparked your interest in true crime? I think so because I remember I remember I found this was at the start of Facebook and so I remember finding out about it right after it happened before we knew who did it and I remember talking with my friend about it and there were some very specific things that happened in the case where we were, you know, we were speculating, we were certain that it was somebody who knew her that did this just because of the, some of the things that happened. And it was just such a shock of what happened. So Auburn is a very, is a small college town. It basically exists because of the university. It's about 30,000 students in at the school and maybe 70,000 people in town. So it's a very, very small town and it's a very close knit community. Right. And it was just such a shock that it that this, some, that this kind of thing happened. So. so before we actually dive into that, I want to kind of add a little caveat for the listeners. Number one, this episode contains some graphic information. Just be aware that there, this is going to be included. Trigger warning, all that. Yeah. Second topic that I want to kind of cover off on very briefly is last episode that we put out, we kind of talked a little bit about our feelings that... Not enough of the true crime coverage and not enough of the news and media coverage are of minorities and why the media jumps on that and makes it sort of sound and appear as as though those women are more important than women of color and men of color in this country that are victims of domestic violence and, and murder and homicide and all kinds of other things. I wanted to say that in this episode because this is going to cover off on a very pretty white girl. But I want to say that that is no reflection on our sort of discussion the last episode because we felt as though this case was important because it had some kind of groundbreaking procedural issues within it. 
Is that correct, Darcy? Is that kind of a fair? Yeah, there's a there's some interesting stuff we'll get into in terms of how the trial and sentencing went with this one. And there's some other issues as far as mental health issues that are also included in this. Mm-hmm. So although it does sort of go against what we determined that we were going to try to cover off on more cases with minorities, it is another case of a pretty white girl. But we felt that as though it was really important to cover off on some of the issues that are included within this episode. And it just so happens that it was a pretty white girl that was the victim in this crime. Mm-hmm. But we are going to be doing our best to try to cover more minority cases and to try to bring a voice to some of these victims that are not as not covered as often in the news. So I just wanted to say that briefly right. before and we got started. By no means are we saying any one case is more important than the other. I just wanted to cover this one particularly because I ha- I felt a personal connection to it because I, I was also a student at Auburn and I was there around the same time that this happened. And, and many of my friends, you know, we all very vividly remember this event. So that's kind of why I wanted to cover it tonight. And additionally, there are some mental health issues within this case that are blowing up in a major and huge way across this country that we're going to talk about as well that are very, very relevant and very, very in the news and important for people to discuss and have sort of a better understanding than we currently have on those issues. Yeah. So why don't we jump right into it? Okay. So... Lauren Burke was a 19-year-old freshman at Auburn University, and she was from Atlanta, and that she was just in her second semester as a student at Auburn. And on the morning of March the 4th, 2008, she had coffee on campus with her boyfriend before she started classes at 11 a.m. because everybody knows when you go to college, you're not trying to start classes at 8 a.m., especially when you're first starting out. You want that extra sleep. I did this. My hands raised. Right, exactly. I was <laughs> no trying to... No one wants those stupid 7 o'clock classes. I don't even know why they offer those. Right. Like, if I could avoid it, I was not doing classes at, like, 8 or 9 a.m. ever. So... After she finished classes for the day, she spoke with her father, James, back in Atlanta about her upcoming spring break plans. Then she went back to hang out at her boyfriend's dorm on the hill. So Auburn's campus is kind of, it's a little bit, it's not really divided, but there's areas of it. So there's like a quad area that is kind of the main area of campus. And then there's an area called the hill. And Obviously, it's called that because it's up a hill. And Auburn doesn't have sorority houses, but they do have sorority dorms. And these dorms are located in an area called the hill. So that's kind of why it's its own separate area. And Okay, so as far as size of this particular university, where does it fall within the the typical? Is it middle, middle uh, size, large size, uh, well, small I th- size? I think it's probably dependent on population, right? So it's the second largest university in the state of Alabama. There's 30,000 students roughly at the school. Um, but okay. it's it's not as big as like Ohio State. There's not like 75,000 students. But I, it's a it's a big school, right? So do they have their own police department on campus? They used to. They did when I was a student. They actually got rid of it around this same time actually. Okay. And I remember that being very striking and uh, You know, it's not one of those things that they could have prevented anything that happened, probably. But I remember thinking about the timing of them getting rid of the the police department. And they they around 2007, 2008, they started using the city police department. Okay, for all campus issues. So that is going to be an issue because it takes a little bit more time, typically, for responses on campus issues for the city police to jump in there. Correct. Is that sort of your understanding as well? 
No, I think the reason that they did this was to save money and because Auburn is a small town, that it wouldn't take very long to respond to something on campus or in the city. It would probably take about the same time. Okay. So, so they figured it's sort of a waste to spend the money on their own police force when the typical city police could respond just as efficiently right, and quickly. Right. And you wouldn't have to okay, spend that money it. on training and things like that. You can use the city's, you can tap into the city's resources. So, plus there's a liability also with having your own police department as well that. Right. So, got it. So, and and back when I was in an undergrad, finishing up undergrad, most freshmen lived on campus in dorms. I don't believe that's the case any longer because there's so many apartments around town. But most freshmen did live in dorms, and so and and in the dorms on the hill, they are they have the sorority dorms, but they also have co-ed floors. Okay. So there will be male freshmen that live on a floor, and then female freshmen that live on a floor, and then the sorority. So. That's kind of like the the, the, the description of, of this hill area. But they so, don't combine men and women on the same floor? No. Okay, got it. Because because it's the South. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> so she after she finished classes, she went back to her boyfriend's dorm, and she took a nap, and he watched TV, and they just kind of hung out. And then later that night, she left so her boyfriend's— just a second. They're in, they're in different buildings— their dorms I, or in different buildings? Yes. They did not live okay. in the same dorm. She was hanging out at his dorm. Okay. Got it. Yeah. And so around 8.30, she left her boyfriend's dorm on the hill for a study session with a high school friend at the library. And if you were to walk from the hill to the library, that would take you about 15 to 20 minutes. And so that's a bit of a walk. Yeah. So Auburn is a type of place where, this is how I always explained it. Any distance is walkable on a Saturday in the fall. Like, you could walk for three miles when you're going to tailgate for a football game, and it's you don't have any problem. But as soon as you're in, like, you have to go for some kind of school thing. Like, if you have to walk for class, you're like, I'm trying to fucking drive, or I'm trying to take the transit. I'm not trying to walk anywhere. It's kind of one of those things. So, But do most people walk everywhere is a, there, or is it— Walk or transit, yeah. It's a, it's a walking campus. Okay. Okay. But at 8.30— PM, you can't get a ticket, so you can park anywhere um, after maybe four thirty or five without getting a ticket. You can park in faculty parking or anything like that. And there is a parking deck at the library, so she was going to drive from her boyfriend's apartment on the hill where she parked to the library. Okay, so she did have a vehicle. She had her own vehicle. Yeah. So she okay. she leaves her boyfriend's dorm and she walked back to her black Honda Civic, which was parked in the hill parking lot, but she never made it to the library. And we know what happened next based on court transcripts. So as she got to her car, a man came up behind her with a gun and told her to get in her car. She got into her passenger seat and the man got in the driver's seat. He asked her how much money she had. And after calming herself down, of course, by seeing, because you're seeing a man with a gun, Lauren gave him the $200 cash that she had in her wallet and asked the man to leave. Then the man contradicted himself and said he didn't want her money. And they start driving away from campus. So do you think he saw that 200 bucks and figured she was worth more? Because what student has $200 just hanging out in their wallet? A college student. I certainly never had $200 in my wallet. I don't ever have $200 in my wallet now. Um, I don't know. So he thought he could probably get more out of her. Okay, got it. So... 
but he contradicted himself and then he said he didn't want her money and then they start driving and they get on college street which is kind of the main thoroughfare through the town and they start heading away from campus and as they left campus the man forced her to take off her clothes and i don't know why he did this i don't know if this was an, an intended sexual assault if this was to prevent her from trying to run there's no indication of why he did this at first Lauren hesitated, but then she started to take off her shirt, and then she took off her bra. And she kept asking him the whole time if he was going to shoot her, and she was trying to talk him out of the situation. She Did you she mention what kind of gun him. he had? Was it a pistol? What Did it, did it say? It was, it was a pistol. Uh, I believe okay. it was a thirty-eight caliber. So she, she basically listened to him and lent a sympathetic ear. While well, the man talked about how his life was over, she, she said she knew people that could get him a job. He said, I already have a job. There's nothing you can do for me. My life is over. Whoa. Meanwhile, both her boyfriend and her study buddy were calling her cell phone. After the first few calls went unanswered, she was finally able to answer her phone with strict instructions to make something up. So the call she answered was from this, the friend that she was supposed to study with. And she said that she had made previous plans and then she abruptly hung up. Oh. And later, this friend said that regretfully he didn't know anything was wrong. But thinking back, he wished he had and he could have alerted somebody. But there's, there's nothing you can do yeah. in that situation. I'm sure she know? was trying to kind of get his attention without doing anything super obvious, but it just was probably too subtle at that point. Of course. Right. So as you get further away from campus, College Street turns into Highway 147. It's the same road. It just changes the name. And at some point between the Farmville Baptist Church and Highway 280, which Highway 280 is the is the main highway that takes you from Birmingham to so Auburn. So can you explain just real quick for listeners who don't know that area, well, are there shops, businesses, strip malls, or is it just like woodsy? Like what, what is that kind of environment like out there when you're on the area they're road? in now is very rural. There's not, there's, there's some subdivisions that have come up now, but there were not there any at the time. It was just a dark highway, dark two lane highway. Like grass, like, yeah. What, what, okay. Tree, yeah, trees, trees and, and grass, grass, just forest. Okay. Yeah. And it was very, it's very dark. So there. she must have been and freaking panicking by that point. Yeah. And it's one of those areas that everybody drives it, but they, they drive it when you're coming in and out of town. You don't drive it, you don't drive it as a student on a regular basis. Got it. So... At some point between the Farmville Baptist Church and Highway 280, Lauren tried to jump out of the car, and that's when she was shot. Oh, the thirty-eight caliber bullet entered the back of her left shoulder and exited through her upper right arm, puncturing both of her lungs. Oh, shit. So Lauren tumbled out of the car while it was still moving, and the driver pulled over in the parking lot of this Farmville Baptist Church to turn around. And the first person to find Lauren was a man named Marcus Ratliff, Okay. Lauren stumbled to her feet, covered in road rash and with a gunshot to her back. And she's nude. And next came Adrian and Savannah Benford, who passed a naked Lauren, waving at them from the shoulder of the highway. Wait, so the first guy she passes does, d- doesn't stop? No, he stops. They both stop. Okay. So they came, they came up on her shortly after each other. 
So both Ratliff and the Benfords turn around to go help the girl, and Ratliff turned around just in this highway. It's a two-lane highway, and he just turned around there. But the Benfords pulled into the Farmville Church parking lot where they found the exit blocked by a black Honda Civic. Oh, fuck. So the Honda then drove out of the parking lot and headed back to Auburn, and the Benfords returned to the scene to check on Lauren. So they have no idea that this guy had anything to do with what happened to this young lady that's alongside of the road. They can probably assume, just because why wouldn't you stop if you weren't involved, you know, to help this girl? But they didn't didn't know who was in the car. They didn't know it was her car or anything. She's got one gunshot wound that has punctured both of her lungs. So at that point, she's she's having a hard time breathing, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And she's fallen out of a moving car that was probably going... I mean, people at night, you'd probably be going 50 miles an hour on that road. It's just a long, flat road. So she's probably got both internal and external bleeding as well. Right. 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 Okay. So, both Marcus Ratliff and the Benfords, they stop traffic in both directions on this highway, and as Lauren was laying on her back in the middle of the road, and they called 911 a little after 9 p.m. So, remember, she left a little bit before 8.30 from the dorm, so this has been going on for about 30 minutes. She's conscious as she's laying in the road? Yes. So, they don't need to initiate CPR because she's still conscious? Correct. Holy fuck. Fuck, can you imagine how freaky that would be? Yeah, it's... Yeah. It's, I mean, this one's a harder one for me to talk about than, than some of the other ones. Again, just because I remember so much about it. But So, Auburn police arrived around 9.12 p.m. Officer okay. Jenkins was the first to arrive. And Lieutenant Charles Buckner arrived shortly after. And he covered Lauren's chest with a jacket. So the police arrived before the ambulance. Yes. Shit. And this is about the time that Lauren stopped breathing. So. Oh, fuck. Jenkins and another witness who had come up on the scene began CPR until the ambulance got there, at which point the medics took over. The paramedic found no pulse or heartbeat. And as they rolled Lauren onto a backboard to load her into the ambulance, that's when they saw the gunshot. So they didn't know that she had been shot before this. They just assumed that it was an injury from the fall from a moving vehicle. Right. Okay. So while the first responders were working to revive Lauren at the scene, the man that stole her car stopped for gas back close to campus. He put almost $15 of gas in her car with her stolen credit card at 9.17 p.m. We know that from the receipt record. So she jumped out of the car, leaving her clothing and her purse and everything else. Yes. Okay, so he has access to all that. At this right, point. and he, so he has all of her, all of her stuff. So he, he also splashed the inside of her car with fuel before driving back to the parking lot oh on the hill God. where her car was originally parked, where he set the car on fire. So I remember specifically, this is what, this is what we heard about when we when we heard about this, we heard that a girl had been found shot nude on Highway 147 and her car was later found on fire at on the hill. And so this is I very vividly remember talking to my friend Meg about this. And this is when we were sure that it was somebody who knew her because right. this was somebody that did something to her to her car after he had already, you know, dumped her. 
So we were certain that this was a very personal thing that he did with setting her car on fire. So he did it presumably to erase evidence that he had been in the vehicle. Right. But you thought maybe he did it because he had some vendetta against her because he had known her and maybe he was a, a scorned lover or something of that effect. Right. We didn't know who did it. We just knew her car was set on fire and we were just we were convinced it was somebody who knew her because it just didn't make any sense why you would do this. We weren't thinking you know, countermeasures or anything like that. We just, we... So when you live in that area and you're a student around that same time period, do you feel more afraid knowing that it's somebody that possibly knows her? Or do you feel like you're somewhat relieved that he knows her and he did this because he knew her, so we don't have to worry? I'm going to answer that kind of in a different approach. I'm going to say I think it was scarier finding out it was not somebody who knew her, that it was a random thing. Okay. So there was a sense of relief when you thought maybe... It was somebody she knew. But then when you found out that it was not somebody you knew, then you felt a, a greater sense of panic. I, yeah, I don't want to say relief, but I, I do want to say I wasn't worried that this could happen to one of my friends when we thought it was somebody who knew her. Once we learned it was somebody random, we, everybody was afraid that this could happen to them, basically. Oh, I'm sure, especially if you're a young, attractive female, which you presumably were at that time, even just a young female in general. Yeah. And college has that ability when you're on a campus, you know, a close knit campus, you have that 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 bubble that you think you're safe and you walk around at night by yourself and everybody does it. It just there's something about a college campus that adds that false sense of security. And then something like this happens, you know, and that's not specific to Auburn. That's every college campus. Um, Right. And that's not to say Auburn doesn't have its its fair share of sexual assaults and things like that. That is true. But this was on a whole new level of of horror. So. Around 9.30 p.m. local time, so it's 10.30 p.m. in Atlanta, they're an hour ahead, James Burke got a phone call that Auburn Fire had just put out a fire of his daughter's car, and did he know where she was? Oh, my God. Immediately, James called his ex-wife, Vivian, Lauren's mother, to see if she had heard from Lauren. And they both started calling friends of Lauren's in Auburn to see if they had heard from her. Right. James also got in his car and started driving to Auburn, which is about an hour and a half away. So by this point, Lauren had been rushed to East Alabama Medical Center, which is about a 20-minute drive away from where they were. 20 minutes going, you know, normal speed. So she arrived at about 9.35 p.m., but was showing no signs of life. Dr. John McFarland and ER staff worked for almost an hour to revive her, but they were unable to, and she died that night. Oh, she was pronounced dead that night. So. Because I'm sure she was dead earlier, and they just weren't able to revive her. But, God, that just sounds horrifying. Because you wouldn't think that one gunshot to the back would kill somebody, necessarily, right? I don't know. I don't know enough about guns to say what a thir- like what size a thirty eight caliber is. And, but it was a very close range, right? He was in the car, in the driver's seat. She was in the passenger seat when he shot her. So I've, I really don't, I don't know enough about ballistics to answer that question. But it was a pistol, first of all. And second of all, unless you hit the heart, it's my understanding that 
there's not always necessarily immediate or fast death if you well, shoot it, somebody. It, right, but say. it wasn't fast, but it did puncture both of her lungs. So she had no way of getting oxygen in her bloodstream. So she probably didn't necessarily die of the gunshot wound itself, more a, a, a asphyxiation because she couldn't breathe because her lungs right. were punctured, right? Right. I, it it doesn't right. seem like this was due to the trauma of the gunshot more uh, as much as it was the damage that the gunshot caused in terms of the vital organs. That sounds absolutely insanely horrific. Like, I can't even imagine what she must have been thinking and feeling while all of this. What a terrible way to die. Yeah. Yeah. So Lauren's body was sent to Montgomery, the capital, to the Alabama Department of Forensic Sciences for autopsy. And her car was examined by the state fire marshal's office and officers from Lee County Sheriff's Office. Lee County is where Auburn is. Okay. In the car... They found her melted belongings, and under the driver's seat, they found a thirty-eight caliber bullet. So he did not do so, a very good job in sort of checking the vehicle out to make sure he had not left evidence. Right. So Lauren's credit card was used along I-85 all the way from Auburn to Atlanta, which is just the straight shot up, buying gas and, and just like various gas station food and drinks and stuff like that. So... Remember, this was on, this took place on March 4th, and on March 7th, Phoenix City Police pulled over a man named Courtney Lockhart for speeding. And when the police officer called in Lockhart's information... Where's that? It's a city east of Auburn, between Auburn and the Georgia State okay, Line. Okay, so those of us who aren't Southern, as soon as I heard Phoenix, I was like, oh, was he in Arizona? <laughs> so, sorry. My no, bad. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's Phoenix without the O. Okay. Yeah. So how far had he gone approximately by the time this gentleman was captured? Well, it had been three days. So he had gone all the way to Atlanta and back. And back? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Keep going. So when the police officer called in Lockhart's information, the dispatcher radioed back and said investigators wanted to talk to him. And as Phoenix City crime scene investigators arrived on the scene, Lockhart struggled with the police officer who pulled him over and fled in his car. He then led them on a high-speed chase. And during this chase, he threw his revolver out the window. So while driving through the neighborhood streets, he abruptly stopped his car because apparently he had run across wooden tracks along the road and his car started smoking. So he may have blown a tire. I'm not exactly sure. But he got out of the car, and then he starts running on foot behind a house into the woods. And after chasing him through the woods, they finally got him to stop running. And he's down as he's down on the ground being handcuffed. One of the officers removes Lauren's iPod from his back pocket. Oh! In his car, they found spent thirty-eight special casings and a T-shirt that had flecks of blood on it. On April ninth, two thousand eight. Courtney Lockhart was charged with capital murder during a kidnapping, capital murder during a robbery, and capital murder during an attempted rape. Because of the trial transcripts, we're able to reproduce what happened. So, Courtney Lockhart had joined the Army in 2003, and he had served two deployments to South Korea and Iraq. And there's not a lot of information about him prior to his deployments, but... He, when he returned in the summer of 2005, he got engaged and had a daughter. 
But according to... Wait, does it say that he saw combat or that he just was deployed? It just says he was deployed. And I don't know what role he served in the army. If he was in a combat position, I don't know. So we don't know whether he was a medic or whether he was an infantry or whether... Yeah, okay. He was likely combat adjacent in Iraq, but in South Korea, there you would mostly be doing, I don't know, maybe like security no work. Or, That's not a combat position, correct? Yeah. So, so he in 2005, he returned and he got engaged and had a daughter. But according to his friends and family, he had completely changed from the time that he left or joined the military. So... During his time in the military, he was court-martialed and imprisoned for assaulting and threatening other soldiers, as well as for smoking marijuana. So this guy had no history prior to military service of violence or these sorts of issues. I don't know if he had one prior to his military service, but during his military service, he did. So during his military service, he had a history of court-martials and of discipline. Right. And assault and threats. Okay. And he was... He was discharged for bad conduct after seven months of confinement. So it was serious enough where he was confined in a military jail. And he returned to live with his mother in Opelika, which is the town right next to Auburn. So he did not go back to the woman that he had the child with. It doesn't appear so. They were, I believe they were still together, but they were not living together. So by March, 2008, the once neat Lockhart began bathing less and started living out of his car. He worked Jeez. for a grading company, like um, like landscaping grading, okay. you know. And they were doing work in Auburn, but because it had rained the night before, they were unable to work that day. And he claims that he was low on gas and he didn't have enough money to get gas to drive back home. So he started driving toward Auburn University. And he eventually pulled into the parking lot on the hill and backed into a parking space so that he could hide his tag as he watched students walking from their dorms to class. So presumably his plan was, I'm going to rob a student to get money for gas. That, yeah. And he ends up leaving after a police officer drove through the parking lot. Then he drives back toward Opelika, but continues to just drive around for the rest of the day and returns to the parking lot on the hill around sunset even though he's low on gas right and he doesn't have any money so (laughs) that doesn't make any sense and and it's not like this is a really big area but if you're low on gas without enough money to make it home like you can make it home from auburn to opelika if you have enough gas to drive around town and ask your mom for a little cash to get you through right I mean, yeah, who knows? Maybe maybe his mom wasn't there. Maybe she kicked it. You know, I don't know. But either way, he had enough gas. If he had enough gas to drive around Auburn all day and drive between Auburn and Opelika, he had enough gas to get home. So right. it, this just this doesn't track. It, it, but that's this, his story it, that I didn't have yeah. money for gas. I drove around, etc. Exactly. So. He gets back to the parking lot on the hill as the sun goes down, and it's at this time that Lauren Burke walked to her car to go to study at the library. In November of 2010, November 18th, Courtney Lockhart was convicted of capital murder, and during the victim's statement at the sentencing hearing, Lauren's father, Jim, described Lockhart as a coward, saying, you killed her, she's not here, and you are here. That's the bottom line. He finished by adding that Lockhart still has his daughter. So 
from the defense table, Lockhart responds, don't bring my daughter into this. You are not going to bring my daughter into this. I'm sorry for your whole family. To which Jim Burke responded, I wish you hadn't brought my daughter into it. Oh, shit. Although the jury voted 12 to 0 in favor of sentencing Lockhart to life without the chance of parole, Alabama is the only state, or was the only state, where, you, where a judge can override a jury's sentencing recommendation to impose a stronger sentence. So it's not uncommon in every state for judges to impose a lesser sentence. They don't, they're not mandated to follow the jury's recommendation in terms of imposing a lesser sentence, correct? So in other words... The jury gives a recommendation and says, hey, we sentenced this person to life in prison, and the judge will then come back and say, nope, I'm going to give him 25 to right. life with a possibility of parole. That is typically how yeah. that works. And, and, but, but in Alabama, the judge dun, can dun, dun, overrule dun. the recommendation and impose a death penalty, which is what happened in this case. And that is typically not what can be done in other states. Mm -hmm. In this instance, it was allowed at the time in Alabama. Mm -hmm. So in March of 2011, Judge Walker sentenced Courtney Lockhart to death by lethal injection. And as of right now, the sentence is currently working its way through the appeals process. And most recently in February of this year, he, he's, he has been recently trying to get his, this sentence overturned. But from everything I have seen, this sentence was affirmed, and it's still continuing to work its way through the further appeals process. It's my understanding that he is seeking a new trial. Is that not correct? He is, because he, they, in his original trial, they brought up that he has PTSD from his time in, in the military, and that this essentially caused him to develop violent tendencies, I guess is what they're trying to say. Okay, so let me just make this clear to the listeners who may not understand this concept. When somebody asks for a new trial with the recommendation that something was not considered in the original trial, it does not necessarily mean that they are trying to get rid of the guilt or remove the fact that they actually did this crime. In most cases, it is something that is to be considered as a mitigating or mitigating, however you choose to say that, circumstance, which would lessen, decrease, or change the sentencing guidelines for the person. Right. So they are trying, in this particular instance, he is not trying to say, hey, I didn't do this. I, I want a new trial because I didn't do it. I'm completely innocent. In this particular case, he wants that information considered because he feels as though it would get rid of the death sentence in this case. And and that was always the case from his original trial. It was never, they never tried to present a defense that he did not do it. They tried to present the defense that he didn't intend to kill her. In his original trial, he claims the gun went off as she was like trying to escape the car. But they had, you know, they, they brought in a ballistics expert that said if the gun is cocked, it takes five pounds of pressure to pull the trigger. If the gun is not cocked, it takes 12 pounds of pressure. Basically, they're saying the gun just wouldn't go off. You would have to apply that pressure. And let's also make it clear that during a criminal case where somebody dies, a homicide case, you don't necessarily automatically get the death penalty as well. It depends on a number of different circumstances surrounding the particular crime. In order mm -hmm. to get the death penalty, there have to be a combination of factors involved, including multiple crimes commissioned at the same time, uh, use of a gun or a weapon mm -hmm. during the commission of a crime. 
and so on and so forth. It's not just as though you accidentally kill somebody and the death penalty is your only option. Right. Typically, if somebody kills somebody what the, in a way that they claim was not intentional, then typically that is going to give you a criminal sentence like life in prison or 25 years to life or 25 with the possibility of parole. In this instance, the judge determined that there were additional circumstances in this because the gun was involved, because kidnapping was involved, because the girl died that he was then eligible for the death penalty. And Does that make sense? Yeah, and it was a capital trial in the first place because in Alabama, and I believe in most states, for it to be a capital trial it has to be murder in the commission of another felony. And that's why he was charged with capital murder with robbery, with attempted rape, and in the commission of kidnapping. So all three of those made that eligible for capital case. So just because a death occurs in a particular offense does not necessarily mean the death penalty would be on the table. In this instance, the death penalty was on the table because of the commission of multiple crimes when this young woman lost her life. Right. As of today, he is waiting for either a new trial or for the appeals process to go through to uh, get rid of the death sentence, correct? Right. And part of his appeal also is the fact that in 2017, Alabama's Governor Kay Ivey signed into law prohibiting judges from overriding a jury recommendation to impose the death penalty. That is no longer a possibility in the state of Alabama, but that occurred after he was convicted. So that is part of his appeal process as well. But he would typically not be grandfathered into that. It would be cases that come into the court system after the passage of that law that that would apply to. So anything that happened prior to that law would still be eligible for the death penalty. Exactly. That is very, very interesting because typically most states enact a procedure whereby the jury is the one that would give the sentence and the judge could only decrease that potentially. What is it about Alabama where they would go against that particular rule and determine that a judge, because it's presumed that a jury of your peers would be the best at indicating what should happen to you in the commission of a crime as a consequence for your crime. Clearly, in this instance, the judge went above and beyond what he should have and determined that a jury of his peers did not give the correct sentence and went ahead and sentenced this guy to death. So do you think this was an issue of a vendetta against this particular man? Or do you think the judge just said, hey, given the facts in this case and the commission of this crime and how it all played out, I really feel like this is not sufficient punishment and I need to add on. What is your thought on that? I don't think it was specific to Courtney Lockhart. I think judicial override in Alabama was a problem. And... It it happened quite often. I believe like 20% of the people on Alabama's death row were sentences imposed by the judge over the jury. This case is particularly controversial, though, from what I understand in reading about it, because this is a black man and it was a white woman. So there are many people that believe Mm -hmm. that this was simply an issue of the judge saying, oh, it's another violent black man in the commission of a crime. He needs to be punished. And that is entirely possible, but again, I don't think that is specific to this individual case because, again, in the statistics of judicial override in Alabama, it is primarily a sentence imposed on African-American convicts. The death sentence. Correct. 
So it's not necessarily personal to the the particular man in this case, but it is a racial issue that is overriding in the state of Alabama yeah. against black men. And that's and 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 people, persons of color, especially African American men, getting a death penalty does happen far more often nationwide. But in this particular case in Alabama, and I'm not saying that I disagree with the conviction. In this case. At all. Right. At all. I, I think that this was this was a horrific crime. I am across the board against the death penalty. And I especially don't agree with the, the that the judge should be able to override a jury recommendation. Because I do think that the, ju- the jury did take into account his PTSD. Right. When, when, they, when they sentenced him to life without parole. So who better to determine the fairness of a case than a jury of your peers? That's why we set up the judicial system in the manner that we've set it up. Mm-hmm. And again, I don't want to advocate on this man's behalf because he killed a woman. But at right. the same time, people from both sides find this to be a very lightning rod type of an issue because it seems that the southern, some of the southern states have a history of discrimination. Black men in general comprise a vast majority of the men in the prison system today when they only comprise about 10 to 15 percent of the total population in the U.S. It is vastly mm-hmm. disproportionate, and they are also disproportionately the ones on death row. And I don't want to make this case about race. I don't think that this was an instance where he particularly victimized a white woman because she was a white woman. I don't even know that the sentence was imposed more harshly because he's a black man. I don't know any of that. I I disagree with the entire idea of judicial override to impose a death penalty. I I would have to agree with you on that one. And the thing with the death penalty is... The basic concept and the premise behind the death penalty is the sort of eye for an eye concept that, Mm -hmm. you know, you kill somebody, you should lose your life as well. But and there are people that advocate on behalf of it, like, why should we pay to keep this person in prison for the rest of their lives when we could just But it's actually more expensive to house somebody on death row. I was just going to say, the appeals process that is a requirement on any death row cases. It is required in the U.S. that if somebody gets the death penalty, there is an automatic appeals process that must go through and be completely enacted to completion 100% before the person can be put to death. That takes years, and it is very, very expensive, and it ends up being three to five times more expensive than housing a prisoner for life. Mm-hmm. And so, just segregating them on death row is more expensive. Their medical costs are more expensive because we basically have to keep them alive so that we can kill them later. Right. And so, the death penalty's already been shown. I don't know how many research studies have been done to show that the death penalty is not not a deterrent. Right. And I'm not really sure how I feel about the death penalty one way or the other. And those of you who have listened to our podcast for a while know that I have a personal connection to this. My grandfather got the death penalty for a case in the 60s. So I understand it. I know what's behind it. And I know how the family members feel regardless of what happened in the commission of the crime. It is a very, very interesting topic. And very, very controversial in this country. Some people feel very strongly to the point of violence about this issue. And I I just, there are many more reasons, I think, to keep the person in prison than to 
administer a death penalty in most instances. Like some people are just beyond redemption. There's nothing that they're going to do in prison that is going to make the lives of anyone any better and they're better off gone. But I would say there's still a purpose for the vast majority of individuals that are in prison. There is still light that can be shown upon benefits they can provide to society. So I they should not be killed. I feel like the the responsibility of the government is to protect the public from violent criminals. And and by locking somebody away in prison and actually if life actually means life, which is a whole other topic that we could spend 28 hours on, right. then then that should be the the sole purpose, right? So if life means life, then they are isolated. They can't victimize other people. I don't right. think that the death penalty serves the purpose that we claim it serves. And many of these prisons in the South and other areas are just atrocious. Right. right? So, like, the kind of torture that you would experience in certain instances could be way worse over the years than potentially being put to death and being put out of your misery. But, again, I don't necessarily know how I feel on this topic other than I know I have a family history of this and I know that it is much more expensive to put the person to death than it is to keep them alive. And I also Mm -hmm. know that my grandfather's case was pushed through the system in months, whereas death penalties today can stretch on for years and decades before this person is actually, before the death sentence is actually put into use. Right. There are numerous people that have died on death row before Waiting to they're be executed. To and just I just want to read out some quick stats on this judicial override. Again, this was um, this this ability, this privilege was was removed in 2017. The only good thing Alabama's governor has ever done since 1976, when the death penalty was reenacted across the country, Alabama judges have overridden jury verdicts 112 times. 91% of those have overruled jury verdicts of life to impose the death penalty. Wow. So it, it judicial override is the primary reason why Alabama has had the highest per capita death sentencing rate in the country. Wow. So that's a a pervasive issue to me. What that says is that is an extremely Mm -hmm. pervasive, problematic issue in that state. Mm -hmm. And again, this is something I'm not I'm not saying that I'm not taking Courtney Lockhart's side. What he did was horrific. I absolutely 100 percent agree that he was guilty. But I think that the jury's recommendation should have been followed. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about post-traumatic stress disorder. Okay. Because he's saying that he deserves a new trial because he had post-traumatic stress disorder. What is your, like, basic thoughts on this? Do you think he deserves a new trial because the judge didn't consider his post-traumatic stress disorder? I don't think he deserves a new trial. I think he deserves the sentence to be reduced Reduced. to mandatory life. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about post-traumatic stress disorder. Do you have any experience with this particular disorder? I don't. And I have worked, I worked with the military for five years and I, I know so little about post-traumatic stress disorder that I don't even feel like I could contribute to an intellectual conversation about it. I know that it is not restricted right, to well, military. I know it is any traumatic event and I know a little bit about the history of it and the you know terms of when we were growing up, they called it Gulf War syndrome. Right. But that's pretty much all I know. Well, I mean, and I'd want to make it clear too, that this is not a matter of Darcy ignoring or, you know, not caring about this particular issue. The, the military that she was involved with were current men in service that typically hadn't seen right. combat yet. Is that kind of... 
Yeah, they were they were training for their first deployment, basically. So they, they really hadn't gotten to the point where they would have the ability to experience post-traumatic stress disorder. But I do have experience with this, not necessarily for myself, but my father was a Vietnam vet. And I want to explain something to listeners who don't necessarily understand what this concept is. Post-traumatic stress disorder is basically a mental disorder that can develop in a person who is exposed to any sort of traumatic event, whether it be sexual assault, warfare, traffic collisions, or threats to another person's life. Symptoms can include disturbing thoughts, feelings, or dreams related to the events, Mental or physical distress to trauma-related cues, attempts to avoid trauma-related cues, alterations in how a person thinks and feels, and an increase in the fight-or-flight response. These symptoms can last for more than a month after the event, and sometimes even years. Young children are less likely to show distress, but instead may express their, their memories through when they play. But a person with PTSD is at a higher risk for suicide and intentional self-harm. See, so that basically says that they're more likely to be suicidal or to experience violence or self-harming and not right and not become violent. But that's not necessarily true, because let me kind of explain the situation here in general. In the U.S., about 3.5% of all adults have PTSD in any given year. Wow. So it's not necessarily a lifelong condition, and about 9% of people develop it at some point in their life. So in the rest of the world, these rates are very much lower, about 05 to 1%. And higher rates of this particular condition appear in armed conflict-type situations. So we have military men and women that experience this condition in general. So just to lend sort of a, a personalized note to this, my father was in Vietnam. He did one tour of duty in Vietnam. He was not even a combat individual. He was a truck driver who experienced some of the elements of violence when he went to Vietnam to serve during that particular instance. He was drafted. He did not go into this particular conflict willingly per se because he did not agree, I think, with what was going on over Mm -hmm. there. But as people know, when you are drafted into a conflict, you don't really have an option unless you plan on taking off and going over the border into Canada or into a different country. My father had young children at that point He had one son already, so taking off and moving to Canada wasn't really an Mm -hmm. option, although we do have family in Canada. So he could have done that if he wanted to, but he came from an instance where my grandfather, my grandfather's father, all of those men served in the military, and he felt like it was his duty to do that, regardless of his personal opinions about the particular conflict in Vietnam. And I think at that time in our history, many people in our society and men and women alike did not understand what the Vietnam conflict was about. Right. Mm -hmm. So my father went over to Vietnam and served one tour there, which I, I think it was about a year to two years of time in Vietnam as a truck driver and experienced many different things during that time. He was a Marine. So, 
the training and different things that they did during the time period, regardless of whether you were an infantry member or a truck driver, was very similar. You still had to go through the same basic training, the same training maneuvers, the same weapons training, etc., whether mm -hmm. you were a truck driver or an infantryman on the front line. So he recalled instances to me when I talked about him later where he had been buried up to his neck in dirt or sand and forced to sit there for hours as form of punishment or training to make them tougher as men. Mm -hmm. But in any case, I think he's blocked out a lot of the events that he witnessed while he was over there. But when he did mm -hmm. come back, much like the man who perpetuated the crime in this particular case, he was a different man. Now, I say that in what I remember as a child in that emotionally speaking, he was definitely more withdrawn. And he kind of had this hair trick. Is it called hair trigger? Hairpin trigger reflex where if you woke him up when he was sleeping, number one, he would wake up at the drop yeah. of a hat, any kind of sound, any kind of movement in the bed, any of that. And, just and that's really common up. for anyone like he, that's been in the military. Right. He would jump up as a reflex and grab the nearest weapon. Wow. And I remember something like this happening when I was like four or five. Where, like, I shifted, I, I was sleeping in the bed, him and my siblings and I were all with my father in the bed, and one of us shifted and sat up or something, and he had a Bowie knife. It was probably a six to eight inch Bowie knife that he kept next to him on the bed stand, and he picked that up as wow. soon as he woke up and was ready to kind of do battle. And it was these sorts of things that really made me realize that he was impacted in a way that was definitely more dramatic and traumatic than any of us could have imagined. Cause that wasn't really a thing when we were little post-traumatic stress disorder and sort of combat syndromes and things like that were not issues that we knew about or understood anything about when we were little. We just thought, Oh, that's dad. Yeah. Being they dad. just called it shell shock. Yeah. That's dad being dad. That's yeah. normal. But he was not like that before he went into the service is my understanding from having had conversations with my grandmother. He was unable to hold a job down when he came back. He jumped from job to job to job to job and could not get his shit together when he had been fine with that until he left. Mm -hmm. So the man that perpetuated this crime in this particular instance had done multiple tours of duty. So I can't imagine how that would compound itself over the course of time. And granted, was it one of those courses of, uh, of those tours of duty that was in Korea or was it two and then one in the Middle East. I believe it was just one in Korea and one in Iraq. So just two tours of duty. Yeah. I just, I have a hard time. Yeah, because he was only in for two years. My father was a different man. He was definitely changed. He had that reflex that he could not get rid of. And he still, I think to this day, sort of has that reflex. But he never killed anyone. He never hurt anyone. Right. And the majority of people that do come back from military service don't do violent crimes. Right. So I don't understand how we can justify treating this man differently because he had post-traumatic stress disorder and was the aggressor in the commission of a violent crime. Many, many, many people with post-traumatic stress disorder do not go out and commit violent crimes. So why should he be treated differently than anyone else? That's what mm -hmm. I kind of don't understand. Yeah, I agree. I, I think, again, like, you know, I think that that... I do think this is something that sounds like the jury did take that into consideration in the sentencing hearing, but that doesn't lessen right. and, and had a little bit of mercy on him. Yeah. 
Now, when people have post-traumatic stress disorder, typically a lot of them develop depression, anxiety, and mood disorders, and then drug and alcohol abuse are huge, 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 huge for people with PTSD. I can understand if this gentleman had claimed to have PTSD and had been under the influence of drugs or alcohol during the commission of this crime and having some leniency for that reason, but... It's my understanding he was not under the influence of drugs or alcohol during the commission of this crime. Is that correct? I've never heard, yeah, I've never heard anything to say that he was under the influence of either drugs or alcohol. Or had a history of abusing drugs or alcohol since he got back. I never heard of that. Very, very interesting. And then, as well, he did not sexually, he did not rape this woman. He did not sexually, um, what is the word I'm looking for? There, there wasn't evidence of sexual assault, but again, when he had her remove her clothes, I don't know if that was the intent, but he was charged with attempted rape. I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that particular mitigating factor in this particular instance, because like I said, many, I know many people that have experienced, I dated a Marine who had post-traumatic stress disorder because he'd been in Mm -hmm. Iraq three times and he had seen combat. Mm -hmm. So... I, we don't know what his events were and what occurred for this man while he served his time overseas. But at the same time, it's just like we need to start helping these men. We need to stop, and women as well, we need to stop ignoring the fact that shit happens when people are in service and start providing services for this person and these people. Because if this man had been properly vetted through the system when he got back from military service, he was discharged for inappropriate behavior, correct? Yeah. He was confined for seven months after a military court-martial for assault, and then he was discharged with a bad conduct. So, so clearly he's acting out. Why yeah. are we not... Why are we not putting these people into some sort of a counseling program or some sort of mental health help? Why are these people slipping through the cracks? Well, the other question that we don't know is he joined in 2003. So this is shortly after 9-11. So they're they're taking anybody and everybody that wants to join the military at this time. Did he have violent tendencies in his past that would have prevented him from joining if he had joined at another time? Right. The floodgates were open in terms of anybody wanting to join the military around this time once we started the invasion of Iraq, and which started in 2003. So anybody that wanted to join and serve their country and wear the flag, they, they took them. And was there, now they have stricter restrictions on, on who they let right. in because they don't need so many bodies. But that's what they needed in 2003. And so was this something that he had a history of violence in his past? We don't know about. We don't know any of that. I mean, his family claims he did not, that he was a changed man when he came back. But of course, your family is always going to say the most positive things about you to try to reduce whatever sentence you're going to get because they don't want to see you spend the rest of your life in prison. But there are so many unknown factors in this particular case that we are not privy to that I think would influence our decision and whether we believe he should be given the death penalty or life in prison or even a lesser sentence than that. So we try to keep that in mind when we're having opinions about cases like this. But this one just has so many different features that are involved in it that are are unique that makes it more interesting. In general, how did this change your life when you experienced this as a student at that time? I, my, my bubble was burst because I, again, I wasn't in college at the time. I was between my bachelor's and my master's. But when I went back, I went back with my eyes wide open of the dangers that are, are, are around on a college campus that you don't 
think about when you're in this bubble and on this campus where, you know, it's like Auburn has a reputation for being very nice. Like the people are very nice and it's, it's, it's the only place. And I'll say this. I grew up in Alabama. I lived there until I was 27. I have no intention of ever living in the state of Alabama again. I would consider working at Auburn after I finished my PhD. It's the only place in Alabama I would live again. It's, it's just, it's, it's that amazing of a place. And so for this to happen, when, when you have, when you see Auburn in rose colored glasses, like I did and do it, it's terrifying. It changes how you walk around and experience the world. And that's, that's, right. how, that's what I, I say. That's what I, how I feel like this changed me and, and my friends down there at the time. I think what's even more critical to look at in this case as well is this was not a type of a case like Ted Bundy where he was looking for these women with the hair parted down the middle and he had a specific type of woman he was looking for. This was a random just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And to me, those are even right. more scary because when you have a serial killer that's out there looking for a certain type of woman, you almost feel as though you can protect yourself to a certain degree by avoiding certain behaviors or looks or whatever. But in this sort, mm-hmm. this sort of a case, you can't prevent this. You can't avoid it. It's random. Yeah. And the and distance between the dorm and your car is so small that it was such a narrow window for her to have been the victim of this crime. What, if anything, could this poor girl have done to prevent this? I mean, it's not like she could have carried mace or, like, had self-defense practices or, like, what could she have done? I think that's what was so scary about it is because it doesn't seem like there was anything that she could have done. He had a gun. because he had a gun. And as soon as she got to her car door, he was on her with a gun at her back. And I don't know, I don't know how you can be prepared for that situation. I don't know how you can try and think of ways to get out of that situation. I don't, I think that's what made it so scary is that it doesn't seem like there's anything she could have done. It doesn't seem like if there had been campus police that they would have been able to prevent this. It doesn't seem like there was anything to stop this from happening. Right. Well, and again, I I hate to keep banging on this particular issue, but mental health care in this country sucks. We need a major overhaul. This man somehow fell through the cracks, and if he is suggesting and he's telling the truth about this post-traumatic stress disorder, then he needed help, and we failed him as a society to provide that help to prevent an issue like this from happening. And the thing is, this is one of many hundreds and hundreds of similar cases where the person clearly has violence issues or mental health issues and is not receiving the help, and no one helps them, and this sort of a thing happens. We need to stop letting these people fall through the cracks. And it sounds like Lauren would have been the type of person that could have made a difference. Yeah. She sounded like a very compassionate person. The fact that she offered him a job and was looking out for his, you know, it doesn't have to be this way. I, can, I know somebody can get you a job. She clearly wanted to help. It just right. is an awful, awful, awful tragedy that, number one, he fell through the cracks, and number two, that he extinguished a light of a young woman who could have potentially done so many wonderful things for our society. And that's what crime does in this country, and the fact that we're not paying attention to mental health problems with a vast majority of our citizens of this country and even worldwide. Yeah. Social media, where are we at, Darcy? 
We are at the BFD podcast on both Twitter and Instagram. So give us a follow. Hit us up. This is the point in the show, folks, where we say so long, farewell, good night. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our little podcast. It definitely helps us determine how we're doing and what we can do to improve for you folks. If you have comments, questions, suggestions, etc., please give us an email as well. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We love, love, love your emails, so please send us emails. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stuff. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye. War Eagle Lauren.